found this thing that nobody else is seeing and like I can capitalize on it. Once you have bots for the short tail, you know, you're doing uni arbs and stuff. I think that's where most people gravitate because the, the, the payoff is, you know, orders of magnitude higher. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits. And today I'm with Brock Smedley from Flashbots. How's it going? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We've uh, we've had a few chats before, but uh, it's, it's good to you know have them recorded now, and uh, I think this will be pretty good. I don't think a lot of people from Flashbots do podcasts um, in general, right? So yeah, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, some people do it, some people don't. But uh, this is your first one, right? I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just for the people that don't know who you are, then um, you know who are you and, and what do you do. Yeah, um, so I'm an engineer at Flashbots. Uh, I've been here for almost two years. So started in the MevGeth days. My official title is Searcher Experience Engineer, but it's like completely made up. <laughs> so it's Searcher basically experience. just <laughs> yeah, it's it's like mostly user experience and like prototyping for new products. So I've worked on uh, a lot of different projects at Flashbots. Just kind of go between teams and help out and. Uh, just do fun shit. Mm. What were you doing before you joined Flashbots, though? Uh, yeah, before I joined Flashbots, um, I was working at a company that I joined right out of college, and I was hired to work on a project called Forte. Okay. So, like, we were like a, a little development shop in like a, a small college town in Oregon. So we like contract out to, to Forte. Uh, and whoever else you know would hire us so i worked on that for like a year and a half if you haven't heard of forte it's like a nft management platform for for various blockchains so it's like their application is directed at games that want to do like on-chain uh you know collectibles or game items or you know stuff like that but yeah i worked on that for like a year and a half and like in the last few months that i was there i um, I got connected with Santiago, who was working uh, at Open Zeppelin at the time, and they were looking for somebody to help out with a, a white hat mission. So, like, oh, okay. somebody had some some tokens stolen, and they like had some sitting in the wallet that mm. like the scammer hadn't taken yet. So, they wanted somebody to help out recovering this, and like uh, Santiago was uh, saying, I should use Flashbots to do it. So he was like the first one to introduce me to it. And like he had done a couple of these before. So he, he showed me the ropes and like reviewed oh, yeah. my code. We pulled that rescue off and wrote a little like blog post about it. Um, was, uh, shared it. So how, how did you really do the rescue though? Because uh, was that like your first time ever doing that? or? Yeah, it was. What was that experience like? I don't think a lot of people get to experience that. So. Yeah, it was it was really cool. I hadn't been exposed at all to flashbots and like mm-hmm. MEV or you know like uh, like private mempool technology in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very used to this mempool paradigm, and you know I was like racking my brain like how do we mm-hmm. how do we pull this off? And then um, like Santiago had a script that mm-hmm. was like basically done, just had to be refactored for the specific tokens and account that we were recovering. Oh yeah. Um, so like the the coding bit wasn't very hard. It was more, am I doing this right? And like, you know, I, I hadn't read the API docs or anything. I was just mm-hmm. kind of like going off of this script and probably lucky, you know, <laughs> like I've, I've, had, <laughs> I've seen people try rescues with, with no preparation and lose like millions of dollars. 
yeah like this was only like seven grand so the stakes weren't super high but yeah we so we we had like i had a team of three that i was working with and we were all just like reviewing the code and just like trying to read as much as possible to make sure that we knew what we were doing and it was like it was actually april 1st when we executed the recovery so it was like a great time great time for jokes like <laughs> hey oh, we yeah, saved no, go, we got your money oh april fools, april fools. <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh oh man yeah no um yeah we ran that uh everything went well mm-hmm. and then, so i posted that blog post about it um mm. and then started talking to uh like the flashbots white hat crew so oh, it was yeah. like you know scott uh was like leading the white hats and like Robert and Alex were kind of like hanging out and helping like connect mm-hmm. everybody. So I got a few more cases and like started making some money on the side doing that. And oh, no. like Did just getting like a portion of saved or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, t- I was taking like 10% of whatever was recovered. Oh, yeah. pretty so nice. pretty decent money just doing like small four or five figure rescues. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I just like started getting really into it. I started reading more about MAV and getting really excited about that. So mm. I like, I just talked to my, uh, I talked to my, uh, employers and I was just like, you know what, <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm just going to quit. Uh, like this stuff is just too cool. And like, we're not, we're not taking this like as seriously as I would want. Cause I was like, we should, we should do more of this. Like, you know, at my, at my company that I was at and they were like, yeah, there's just not a lot of money in it. And I was thinking you know, more along the lines of like building infrastructure to mm-hmm. like support white hats and it, even like supporting white hats, I think was, you know, being, being a greenhorn, I was thinking pretty small scope, but yeah. Being in the early days, it's always small scope until you, know, you kind of like, learn a lot more about the space and then you you get to see like what's missing what's possible etc you're like oh wait i can build something here you know be like big help but i think that usually stems from like needing it yourself and then eventually building it and if it was helpful for you it'd probably helpful for someone else right yeah exactly yeah i just started like building in that space i quit and just started doing white hat like full time to pay the bills and i remember like the day i quit i sent robert burt miller uh, yeah. a message on twitter or maybe it was Discord, because we were still using Discord a lot at the time. And I was mm-hmm. just like, yo, I quit my job, and I want to work for Flashbots. But, like, give me, give me like, three months <laughs> to, like, read and, like, experiment. And mm. just enjoy being unemployed for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then, like, I think it was way more than three months. It was, like, six months went by, and I, like, I hadn't reached out. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then it's, like, out of the blue, Scott sent me a dm he's just like hey you still want to work for flashbots yeah and like his head rent free <laughs> yeah right i was like yeah, yeah i was kinda. i was really enjoying like not working but yeah i was like you know this is like this is gonna be dope like yeah, yeah I'm, I'm coming and then what was like the first things you really did in flashbots oh yeah let me think i think like one of the first projects that i was working on that didn't go anywhere but i thought yeah. was pretty fun was like this it was like a GUI for self recovery of like assets. So you could like do your, do your own white hat rescue. Like one thing I noticed is like, you know, most of these people who get scammed, they do so by sharing their private key with somebody who's, you know, not looking out for them. Yeah. And 
so then like when they come to us, we're like, okay, we can help you. Just give us your private key. <laughs> Scam again. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, man, this is like so antithetical to uh, to our whole mission. So I tried I tried putting yeah. that together, but it, like it, it turns out like these people who share their private key so so willingly, they're pretty willing to share it again. <laughs> like they don't yeah, they yeah. don't care. Yeah, lost so much. It's like just a gamble again. May as well yeah. make it all back. Yeah, it's funny, man. Like you at Flashbots, we emphasize so much the importance of privacy and you know like security and self custody and like you know all the great things about decentralization like it turns out like most people don't don't really care at all they just like want it to work yeah real i think you know it's kind of interesting flashbots about like decentralization because like what we're seeing now is like only maybe like five or four or even three sometimes depending on how how many uh their percentage owned but you know, there's only like around five or less builders and maybe like three or two relayers that are really controlling the entire network. So is it really decentralized? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 less centralized for sure. But yeah, true decentralization, like I think what we're seeing now is it's the big meme right now is geographical decentralization. It's like even mm. if you have even if you have five separate actors or agents and they're all in New York city, like if, you know, somebody takes out the power grid in New York city or something, it's like, it's the network's down for the globe. So, Oh yeah. It's really about think, like, yeah. You know, R-Sync and Titan are both in the UK and they're the biggest ones, you know, like Titan had like 40% at one point and it's always like a competition between them. R-Sync is always at like 25% you know, blocks being built like constantly uh, throughout this year. And it's like, oh, okay. So like 75% of the network belongs to them. They're building all the blocks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's like, you know, it makes you question why would someone, you know, choose to send their bundles to like those two over flashbots, which is like, you know, the original creators and have like these, this vision of, you know, decentralization, right? So, I mean, I mean, why would someone want to choose the send their bundles to flashbots yeah for sure yeah this i mean ties into the same theme that like people don't really care uh Mm. about the privacy guarantees um like i mean i think people are already pretty used to their information being public on on ethereum and just using the mempool i think most people want to do is really like multiplex across all builders and just say you know whichever one of you like puts me in a block fastest that works i don't really care if it's like you know, if flashbots are like OVAC resistant or whatever, it's just like get it on the chain. That's all they care yeah. about. Yeah. Oh, you know, like people just think about, you know, which builder they send it to if they're in like MEV, really. It's not really like yeah. the average user is like, you know, in this market condition, I should, I should send a Titan or this one, I should <laughs> do the R sync. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, totally. you know, I think it should be like a standard, though, for uh, people to send private transactions anyway, because like it doesn't MetaMask, you know, because everybody just gets wrecked when they go uh-huh. for Uniswap, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think like this is this is, I think, a big reason that a lot of people are focusing on intent architecture right now. Um, mm. Like, you know, CowSwap and Matcha and some others, they have like... You know, EIP 712 
is like mm. basically a form of intent, but it's like strictly centralizing. Like you have to have basically MetaMask, you know, sign the message and give it to the to the web client, and mm. they're responsible for delivering it, you know, via their back channels to whatever net, network of executors. Like the mm. user doesn't get any say in where that signed message actually goes. Oh yeah, yeah, it's pretty big risk. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, obviously, obviously, like, I think the biggest reason people actually care about privacy is just front running protection. And oh, yeah. You just get like just completely protection. screwed because like, especially when you're doing AMMs, right? Like on Sushi or Uni or any of those, you know, exchanges or even just like trying to be first into like a pool and like a, meta, uh, a master chef pool, like when something launches, you know, mm-hmm. a front, like a generalized front runner just sees profit steal transaction your transaction fails <laughs> or <laughs> right. you just get like completely wrecked from slippage and they don't even yeah. know it's like uh they're like huh my uh my token's not it's not what i put in turns yeah, out totally. Jared from subway came to give them a little visit <laughs> <laughs> yeah man all vinegar yeah real hmm and you guys recently changed your builder to uh, produce the most profitable block instead of guaranteeing like top of block execution in respect to gas. Why, why, why did you change to that? Yeah, so I think the big reason, and like I don't work on the builder directly, just a disclaimer. Um, so like okay. I don't have I don't have the direct insight into the okay, decision. Okay. But what I understand is the general idea is that like to to win in the block space market. You just mm. have, you, know, you have to win blocks. Switching to a max profit algorithm simply wins more blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we continue to guarantee top of block execution, generally we would lose out on more blocks landed. You, so yeah, you just wouldn't get aggregate more included. You just have to have yeah more more blocks. So max profit does a better job of that. And this is because I'm pretty sure it's the relays that select the most profitable block, right? Or is it the validator? I yeah, I think, think yeah, technically, yeah, it's the it's the relayer. I mean, the relayer doesn't really have any. It shouldn't have any custom logic to, to select a block. It's but just it could. You know, if, if you're running Mev Boost, a Mev Boost relayer, then it's just going to choose the most profitable block. Well, what if they did do custom logic? I, I think <laughs> I think that's like I think we have that outlined in like a code of conduct or something. Code of conduct. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you're gonna audit their like relay though. So, how would you ever know? Yeah, I think I think if it, like if a relayer was like you know doing something mischievous, mm. uh, like it would be obvious. Mm. Like, we wouldn't have to audit it. I think we would probably see it like much sooner than we would you know have to. That then would like require an audit. Like it, there would be an obvious effect. But like, what would you know if they were in like Afghanistan or some some shit, you know, or like somewhere where you don't have jurisdiction, like maybe actually not Afghanistan, probably like Russia or North Korea, and they've just like they're the main relayer, right? Let's just say like ultrasound money is the is in North Korea <laughs> and blocks routes in Russia. Yeah, you know, that's like <laughs> okay. that's like fifty percent of all the blocks, you know being like i guess censored in some way and if you know if they made partnerships with a a builder that's got you know the most like percentage of blocks being built from them like 
right now R Sync is thirty four percent. Then Beaver Build is like twenty three percent. So if they if that that number one like relayer paired up with the number one builder or like I don't know, there's some like conglomerate and all teamed up and somewhere. They <laughs> yeah. basically own the entire network. To some extent. They own the builder market, right? But like as a validator, yeah. you still have the choice of which relays you connect to. So if you know, like mm. as a validator, yeah. if you know that they're doing that, then you can just disconnect. The slot auctions, um, you, did like a, you did a write-up on them. And correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you could remove the relays completely. And then the block builders basically propose the validators or something similar to that. It's like a terrific step in the right direction in terms of you know removing entry requirements to participate in in this market because you know nobody's gonna fucking no no normal person is gonna spin up a relay and maybe spin up a builder at the same time even just spinning up one of them is a you know is an infrastructure problem and you need money and you know like to host a to host a server and you need the expertise to like run one of these things and make it optimized so people use it so I think it does lower the, the entry requirement and so it makes decentralization much easier. But we'll see how that goes. I think I think that would be a pretty cool upgrade though, completely removing the relay. So there's yeah. no, what's it called? PBS. Right. Proposal builder separation. So I think that yeah. would be pretty cool. But who knows when, how that's going to kind of play out. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like uncertain to me when that can happen. Um, but yeah, the relay, as I understand it, was always designed to be an interim sort of role. Like it's it's really a, like a, a bootstrap mechanism to, mm. to connect. Yeah, I mean to to reduce the trust assumptions between builders and validators. Like you you need some some sort of intermediary to basically hold the uh, like hold the block builders block. accountable for delivering the best block and hold the validators accountable for choosing the best block. And so like the relay does, that's what the relay does. And like, if you could put that into code, like that's, that's basically when people are talking about enshrining PBS into Ethereum, like that's, mm. that's sort of the goal there is like replace it with some, you know, protocol level code. Um, that does mm, the same okay. Thing. Mm. okay. That makes sense. What's a? I wonder what would happen though if if you did actually remove the relays. That'd be hard. <laughs> I feel yeah. like because uh, it's kind of every every builder is aggregated to like the relays, and that's kind of determining what to send out and what to stop, etc. But if, if you just just had builders, I wonder how that would work. I guess that would select all of them by default, but then you could like select a certain amount to accept. Yeah. I think like if you had builders and validators directly connected, most likely validators would they would like set up some sort of MEV games. Uh, oh yeah, like you send to a specific builder so that your you know MEV transactions are landing in their blocks, and then you only ever choose you know their blocks that give you MEV. And like mm. that's not the most profitable block for the network, but it gives you the most money because you have like a dog in the race. Eventually, every validator would catch on to that, and you'd have like basically the same problem that we had like with with the mempool before. That like, you know, before it was validators, it was it was miners, and miners were doing MEV in their oh, miners. <laughs> yeah, you know, you do like you receive all the transactions from the mempool, and then you 
you know, you're building blocks locally. And mm. so you're like injecting MEV all over the block. And I think mm. it would be like the same situation if you remove the the relay. How does like the builder, the block space, like market kind of work? Because I think the most recent thing that you mentioned was uh, in the post, the articles is you can actually sell block space and people can buy that up and, and use it. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's like, that's sort of like a, like a high level abstract, like abstraction. Of, okay. Like way to explain it. Like, yeah, when you're, when you say I'm selling block space, it's just like saying, I'm a builder and you, like, you can give me transactions and I'll put them in the block and ah. like, you pay me, you pay me a fee and that's just like your gas fees. Yeah. So it's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, yeah, just an abstraction that's like makes it easier to talk about, but mm. it's, it's not like, Oh, like here's this block space that we're auctioning off. It's like, it doesn't feel like that when you're using it. Mm-mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. In, in terms of that, where you're like selling in an auction, in that kind of environment, the person with the most money always wins. And so, like, what if a, what if some like HFT firm that like some billionaire came in and just always bought up the block space? And now he's just kind of cornered the market. Maybe Jared yeah. does that, you know? Maybe he's just like giga rich. I mean, he is now actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was maybe like five <laughs> mil a month or something or fifteen. I can't remember the. I don't amount. know. Yeah, I heard some crazy figures. I saw like a million dollars a day. I don't. I don't know if that's true, but like maybe oh, one day. I think it was true actually. <laughs> but it's like, it's, it seems like that could be a possibility. Or, you know, a searcher teams up with a builder and then the builder teams up with a relay. And now you have this the entire chain of, of like, you know, entering the block, producing the block, sending the block, like the most yeah. profitable one. And, you know, it doesn't even, they don't have to make profit. To get like the most percentage, you could just like, lose money and still like outbid everyone else that are trying to make money. So you yeah. like purposely gain percentage by losing money. And like, you know, billionaires could definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a whole nother problem in itself. And it's a, uh, like, how do you solve these? Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's not a huge problem just because of like, basically just look at the incentive structure. Like if you're a billionaire and you want to buy up all the block space for whatever, like okay you can do that and you can fill every block with whatever you want like <laughs> there's actually a pretty funny example that uh i think it was a mev refund on twitter or maybe repost like r-i-p-o-s-t-e oh, yeah. mm-hmm. he was uh i think he was screwing around with like mev boost on Gorly, and he sent mm-hmm. he managed to send a block and like take up the entire block and it was it was completely <laughs> empty and all it just had like a graffiti on the block that just said this is my block get your own block <laughs> it was hilarious because it was like just a joke but it was a proof that like you could completely own a block if you really wanted to you just had to have enough money you know he had enough gorly ETH to do it it was like 12 ETH or something but mm. it's gorly yeah no big deal but like think- if you wanted to do this on mainnet like you'd have to have a really good reason to do so because like if you're a lone actor you have all these you know mev rich blocks to compete with and like i think like the theory or the principle is that the more order flow you have and just the more traffic you're processing as a as a builder the more valuable your blocks are going to be just because you have more opportunities for mev and so, like, mm. to compete with all of that MEV extraction and still produce the most profitable block, and this is, like, assuming that you stick 
inside MevBoost. If you just ran your own validator solo, then yeah, you could just do this without having to worry about MevBoost and just like propose your own blocks. But the opportunity would be much more rare. And like, so mm. to, to land every block, you'd want to be in MevBoost. And so then you'd have to like subsidize every block. And you know, the, the, the cost is so high. It's like, for what? What are you doing? If there's a really good reason and it makes you money, like, okay, sure. But good luck, like, competing with all that MEV, like, still yeah. coming out profitable. Yeah. On the topic of order flow, what, what can, like, an RPC provider do to monetize the order flow? And, and how, how valuable do you think, like, overall order flow is uh, or will be in the future? Hmm. Great question. Yeah. Like, RPCs are basically the the entry point for yeah, all the users. Yeah. And so, yeah, like controlling that is is a pretty important position of power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as an, as an RPC, you essentially have full control over the transaction and the signature. So a signed mm-hmm. transaction. And yeah. like you get to choose, you know, where it's sent uh, after you receive it. So whether that's like faithfully sent to a builder or whether it's like, decoded mm. and like mined for uh mev information and discarded it's like up to you um, because there's no mm-hmm. way of anybody else knowing what happened to it because you know the message was was delivered off channel you know never touched the chain never was gossiped so like as the rpc provider you have basically complete control um before it lands on chain yeah Mm, like the Infurer and forget the other ones I haven't used in so long. Alchemy, yeah. Like these these people are basically what all the normies are using. Like it, all the non-Mev people. It's like the entire entire like space, right? Yeah. Or whatever MetaMask is connected to as well. Like you yeah, just I have MetaMask is Infra as well. Yeah, it's just like you have utter power. And then you know, I imagine like these these RPCs would also track your IP. I know MetaMask does that. I recently found out. <laughs> Uh, all my all my anon wallets are no longer anon. <laughs> <laughs> they never were. <laughs> they, yeah, they never were. It's like that meme, <laughs> just <laughs> the, the astronaut in the space. Yeah. If I were to run a node, theoretically, not saying I would, but like it is a possibility to track every IP and like put everyone in a database to some degree and being like, okay, what's this address doing? And it also makes you wonder. You know, if people talk a lot about hacks and uh, obviously the entry to do a hack is send to an RBC or, you know, spin up your own node and gossip through that. Um, But, you know, there's always going to be the block builder you have to send to at least. So I think in terms of like, you know, security in the space, do, do you think like app security would be less important than system security or network security in the terms of live detection and even like forensics as well. If you're tracking like IPs and you see a, you see like a hacker, you could be, I mean, you could find them, IRL them, unless they use, you know, a VPN and like Tor or something. But yeah, I think it would make it like one step easier in, in, in a sense. Yeah, I think for sure, like it makes it one step easier. I mean, if you're a hacker, you're, most likely never going to leak your IP, like your your actual IP. Mm. But, you know, it's a if step in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, mm. I, I've heard a lot of um, projects doing, like, inline detection. What I mean is, like, say there's, like, a, like a, a module in MetaMask that 
like simulates a transaction and you tell it uh, or it analyzes or you know figures out somehow what isn't like intended and what's mm. actually happening and they'll like do this detection in line like before you send the transaction which i thought was pretty cool i think yeah like there's a lot of things we can do at that uh like app layer oh yeah to yeah the, to the wallets that privacy. simulate and all that stuff yeah mm. i think one of them was like the fire wallet i think that one was kind of doing that stuff of simulating and decoding like call data and whatnot or like oh, the yeah. contract but i think oh. the ultimate like wallet would have to be like be able to simulate even do their like own exploit kind of or vulnerability detection on the contract, et cetera. Cause you know, people get wrecked from like rug pools and whatnot anyway. So yeah, there's a lot yeah. of the infra, you know, awaiting. <laughs> it's just definitely who's building it. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people are building wallets that address this, like, you know, in the pre chain context, mm. I I've heard some pitches about, um, about systems that analyze like private mempool data and mm. look look for um, like opportunities that arise in like multiple transaction contexts. I'm, I'm explaining this bad. Uh, like <laughs> <laughs> the like opportunities that come out of like multiple transactions. Like like if you have mm. a bundle and you know the exploit doesn't trigger until the third transaction, like you wouldn't be able to see that in the in the single transaction inline sort of thing. But you could detect it as like okay, the searcher is like exploiting this user by front running or back running them somehow. But then that introduces like a, a whole other host of security concerns, like you know a bot that just reads the private mempool all the time and like <laughs> aggregating data for its AI processor, constantly monitoring it. Somebody pitched that to us and like, it was, it was a cool idea in principle, but we were like, like, hell no, that's not going to happen. We're mm. just going to be collecting all this data and shipping it off. Like, no, we can't mm. do that. Yeah. Mm, it's interesting. Cause uh, I think a big thing that people are building now is like live, transaction kind of hacks like detection and prevention kind of like insurance protocols and it's kind of what i see in the cybersec area of automation is just they pair it up with ai they train it on like okay what's the normal hack look like and what is kind of out of the norm it's kind of i mean like mev is technically hacking as well technically it's it's like interchangeable words in my opinion uh, i guess you're not hacking to a degree of like millions but you know it's the same you can like argue the the guy that did the mango exploit was just doing yeah. like MEV, right but you know <laughs> yeah. since it was so much money they're like oh it's a hack or an exploit but like everything else is kind of an exploit to some degree you're just using the protocol but i mean that, that whole kind of yeah that, that whole kind of like philosophy is i guess controversial I've spoken to like a few lawyers about it and it's like a, yeah, it's kind of a gray area. <laughs> I think sandwiching is like illegal in the US now or has been for a bit. But Yeah, I think in traditional markets, like I don't know if they've implemented any like official laws for sandwiching on chain, but mm. it's, yeah, like in a traditional finance context, it's definitely illegal. And I think like, where like most people draw the line uh, between hacking and MEV is just it's like based on a degree of exploitation. Like mm. the Mango guy, you know, it's he like <laughs> dumped he dumped a bunch of money into a pool specifically to manipulate the price 
so that he could execute something else. And so it's like obvious market manipulation. Uh, yeah, which is there's there's no rational reason illegal. aside from like doing the hack to to make that kind of trade. You know, that's like so, it's not something that somebody would just do because they're trading. It's like clearly market <laughs> manipulation. But if you're like you know if you're backgrounding somebody because they caused the price shift, and you want to do a little arb, like that's not manipulative at all. It's like more yeah, corrective. Yeah. yeah so sure. I think mm. it's a good frame framing for that like debate. Mm. I mean, like flashbots could definitely just collect data in general from the private mempool, and like even you know maybe unethical, but it could work towards like advancements of I guess hack hack prevention because you know that's ultimately the the reason why not like you know big players are not coming in because there's the inherent risk of hacks. But then it's a question of like secure code, right? So let me ask you, like, what do you think about the debate of code is law? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't really have an opinion on it. I, I kind of like have taken my way outside of all all of the building and stuff. So in cybersecurity, it's just like I want to hack. Uh, well, I don't want to hack, but like I want to like be able to find an exploit, and then that's the kind of fun of it. But I don't know. Code of code is law. Exploiting a protocol is like taking money that's just out in the open, right? And that you can compare that to like a wallet on a bench you know if, if you're in like the middle east you don't want to do that because uh <laughs> legal legal in, uh implications right so you can look at it from that perspective but uh, other people also say it's like oh they built it they should have known better but the same is kind of with the wallet on the ground like you're gonna take this guy's id and his credit card you should have known better <laughs> <laughs> right yeah when you put it like side by side it seems obvious you know sure it's it's like that's the reality of it, but it doesn't mean it, it makes it okay to take all the money in it. Yeah, you know? yeah, I agree. Ethically. Yeah, ethically, it doesn't make sense. And I think just also just from a design standpoint, like from a software designer's perspective, like that's that's a shit take. Like <laughs> there's there's no such thing yeah. as perfect code, and that, I don't think there ever will be. Like it's just not something that we should strive for. Like people, people are going to yeah. make mistakes and they're going to write shitty code. And that's the way it's always been. And I think that's the way it's always going to be. Like you can make your code better, but it's never going to be perfect. And you're never yeah, going to find mean, every exploit. There's human error, right? And that's like, a that would never be gone as long as a human is doing it. So there's always going to be something wrong or something you didn't think of, especially in the blockchain space where there's like these infinite possibilities of, you know, a protocol comes out and you have your intended execution paths. How can you diverge from this? You know, the, the possibilities of function sequences and call data inputs within each function sequence is just like infinite and it's beyond our comprehension. So if you can't yeah. account for everything, there's something that you're going to miss, I feel like. Yeah. Unless you make it very strict in terms of like, I guess, only within that protocol or very strict checks kind of like a Aave's flash loan like at the end of the flash loan you got to pay it like that yeah. kind of stuff but that's the only thing i can really think of because you know proxies are great to a degree because you're going to upgrade them right like the implementation uh but you know it's kind of a double-edged sword being able to write software that doesn't that's immutable to some degree you know but 
that that just puts a higher emphasis on security and that's why like these uh these researchers get paid so much because it's there's a lot on the line <laughs> yeah. in terms of you know reputation and money like you you know you see these big big protocols getting hacked for you know tens of millions or even more like the bridges getting hacked for hundreds of millions and it's <laughs> and the bridges you can kind of like change because it's a bit off chain but you know the on-chain protocols. It's you know if you get hacked once and you know tens of millions are gone, you your reputation as developer is over. Especially if you're doxxed, like who's going to want to invest, put their money back into someone that got hacked for you know dozens, tens of yeah. millions, right? Yeah, I think it's a bit a uh, bit easier for anons because they can kind of ditch the identity and start a new one. But yeah, it's uh, still not a good thing. So I think cybersecurity is like the biggest thing preventing like global adoption to something like a traditional markets, right? Cause it's just the inherent risk of losing everything. You know, if you're, if you're a firm putting, you know, a couple millions for a protocol to, to yield farm on like, you know, 5% interest or something that's, you know, like a reputable, a reputable like protocol. I imagine one day it just gets hit like three years later or something. And then all that money's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think people want to take that risk. How come you never got into searching? You know, you, you've gone so far into flashbots and you're very knowledgeable of all the stuff. So why why not get into searching and start capitalizing on that knowledge in, in like the MEV world or advising for other teams or whatnot? Yeah, I think like, I think the biggest factor is just like the game itself is so, it's just demanding like to be mm. a to compete really is like the challenge oh yeah because it's 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 like a lifestyle i feel like you know oh, yeah it's, definitely <laughs> it's not just like i i spend a couple of weeks writing a good bot and i run it and then i'm set it's like no it's like i i watch the chain every day and i'm like analyzing my competitors bots and i'm making tweaks all the time and it's just like every day it feels like every searcher i've talked to is sort of like in that mindset of like always on, always searching. Like honestly, like just don't want to do that. <laughs> like, yeah, I enjoy <laughs> like having dinner at six PM. Mm, not worrying about someone overtaking you and you not making any more money. Yeah. Uh, I do like I'm really, you know, intrigued by the by the scene and like the software. And so like I've I've written a bunch of bots just for like to prove the concept and like use them in like some experiments to like, like hindsight is, is a good example. Like I built yeah. this like bot that was based off of rusty Sando that just removed the front, like the front run component. So instead of a sandwich bot, it's just a background Back bot. running. Yeah. And like, I just use that to, to like gather historical data, like, and that's just for data analysis for the data team. And it's like you're writing the same code, but like the game you're playing is totally different. Mm, yeah, definitely. You know, it was interesting because I was, I was reading that repo and I think you mentioned that um, with hindsight, you know, the historical MEV like strategy simulator, it's a uh, people are still leaving like money on the table after doing like an ob or some kind of extraction, which is weird, right? Like, huh. <laughs> Yeah, well, most of what I noticed is like most opportunities just aren't being captured. And the ones that do, 
Well, there's like basically two kinds of bots that are running on MevShare right now. Um, and I think the most dominant one is like on-chain searching. So like Uni V2 mm-hmm. to Uni V2, you just do the, you know, X, XY equals K. And yeah. you can just calculate the perfect ARB with like rel- relatively low computation. And that's like, so this is like our simple blind ARB bot that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think most people are running a strategy that's like similar to that. But then like Frankie from Paradigm, he's got, yeah. you know, Artemis that has a Uni V3 MevShare bot. It does like a probabilistic algorithm, but it's not, it's not really like based on heuristics. It's just like a, it's just a sweeping range oh, right. of, of hard-coded ARBs. And so like eventually, like every once in a while, it, it will land one. But like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're completely guessing with no heuristics, it's going to be like pretty far off the ideal ARB. Mm. So that money's getting left on the table. And then like, I think just the, the searcher market is like, it's going, but it still hasn't hit that critical point of like all the MEV being captured. Yeah, I think that's kind of impossible, though, unless you have some generalized. Yeah, I mean, for sure, you know, like never hit one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Unless I think the only way you can hit one hundred percent is if you have some kind of like some automated analysis tool to like basically find every single combination from every single contract, every single function. That's the only way, and then you have to do that live as well because when someone deploys a new contract. Then you have to you have to check that with every other contract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like an n factorial problem. It's just uh, not happening. Yeah, search space is impossible. But yeah, yeah you you never hit a hundred percent, and just not only because it's like even if you had a lot of you know historical data or whatever like ways algorithms to find new opportunities, like you still mm. wouldn't necessarily have all the possible opportunities. And like, you know, there's, there's hacks and things that, that could be considered MEV rich that you'll never find. So like, yeah, we just, we have like a, the way that hindsight evaluates it is like, it just restricts the search space like severely. So it just says like, yeah, yeah. if you're only talking to Uniswap and SushiSwap, what's the addressable MEV here? Cause that's pretty easy to calculate. Yeah. I think that's majority MEV as well in terms of short tail, long tail. Also, maybe I think it's. It's either like an entry or exit exit point of like getting a specific token to interact with a protocol and then exiting that token after you do like the long tail. Yeah. But I you know, it could be wrong. They might just have their own like internal oracle or liquidity pool, which isn't like embedded in you know, uni. Cause uh Yeah. You know, an interesting thing with like the uni as well is the like mini MEV game of like LP sniping. Whereas like when an, when an LP comes up, all the bots like rush in to buy that that LP before everyone else's. And then whoever's first basically makes a giant killing because they bought so early and now the price is inflated and they just sell it. But the funny thing is, there's like this counter MEV thing and in this MEV in general, whereas the people deploying the tokens you know, write custom tokens for the for the LP. So when the bots come in, they kind of just rug them. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah. it's like a game within a game. And that's super interesting. Yeah. And they do like very highly customized. So like you can only buy after X amount of blocks or buy X, you know, Y amount, you know, or maybe only some addresses can buy or only E ways. It's a whole, it's a whole game. And that stuff is super hard to analyze, I think, generally. 
in a generalized sense because you can you can move like a storage slot in a different you know, yeah you can move a storage slot in a different uh slot so if it does the same thing like the reserves or the balance you would just move it to like a different slot basically and then you wouldn't know general you know generalize generalizing yeah. you wouldn't know where it is yeah. unless it's like you find some really good heuristics but Man, that'll be hard, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just impossible to know. So, yeah, we just use like a, if we want to estimate the addressable MEV, we just say like, how does it compare to the baseline? Yeah, I think on the dashboard of all the MEV, like the MEV tracker you guys use, or even, what's that other company? It's like App, Eigen, Eigenfi? Yeah, yeah, Eigenfi. Oh yeah, I can. Yeah, so they they track like the long tail. No, not long tail. Like short tail, I believe. But I mean, there's so much other mev going on. It it really doesn't cap like display the true amount of money just lying down. Yeah, I remember watching a like Bert Miller create like mention he he found some long tail, and he was like, I can't remember. It was like a couple, like dozen grand or you know close to a hundred grand or something. This was a while ago, maybe two years ago. I was watching like this YouTube video of his, like one of his tutorials back in the day. Uh, yeah, he mentioned like he found something and then maybe got front ran or something, but uh, it was a lot of money. Longtail is very lucrative, but you yeah, know, it's like kind of digging for gold, really. Yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, that's why I call it Longtail. It's just rare opportunities. And like, I think that's like probably the most appealing part of searching, like from a, I don't know, just from like a builder nerd perspective. Yeah. It's like, I see this, I found this thing that nobody else is seeing and like I can capitalize on it. Once you have bots for the short tail, you know, you're doing uni, uni arbs and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that's where most people gravitate because oh, the, yeah. the payoff is, you know, orders of magnitude higher. Hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think it's just easier to kind of get into like the, it's kind of like the de facto standard, like the hello world of MEV is like a, a shitty uni V2 R bot. Yeah, <laughs> that, exactly. That like loses money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the gas wrong. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I made my first one, it was like, use a bi binary search. And I think that's why, I mean, you could do like some math to try and optimize the the most optimal amount but you know binary search was was chill to begin with but you weren't getting the specific you know exact amount you could really extract but uh it was still cool though it was a uh, really exciting this was a couple of years ago but man yeah. that was fun <laughs> i remember when uh it was about a year and a half ago maybe two it was like just before i had started at flashbots i found this video that I think Stefan and I don't remember who else was in, but it was mm. titled how to make a million dollars a month with MEV. Oh yeah. I saw that as well. <laughs> and just like, yeah, what a great title like that. That's like one of the most popular videos that came out of flash. It's like, of course people love money. It sounds like a scam, like one of those scam videos or like <laughs> Uniswap bots on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I've been seeing those crop up lately. It's insane. I get like discord DMS um oh you need to turn the noties off bro. Of shit. yeah mm, but yeah but like <laughs> it was such a crazy title <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know i love it flashbots is rugging the scammers 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's why we don't have a token, man. It's like oh we yeah, did, like it would just be a nightmare. Oh, I can imagine. I remember those like gas tokens uh, back in the day. I don't know if they still exist, but oh yeah, I don't think they're useful anymore. You know, it'd be interesting, like account abstraction with MEV. I think that would be super interesting. Yeah, that's a hot topic right now, uh, and I think it's like going to be an increasingly hot topic over the next couple of years is everybody's like talking about intents and like a lot of architectures are shifting towards intent focus Mm -hmm. or at least intent support but yeah like you know it's really not any different than what we have now uh except Mm -hmm. in in the data format i think like Mm -hmm. we're gonna have basically the same systems that deliver transactions to a block you know in in an intent architecture you have Typically, you have like solvers or executors. Yeah. Uniswap calls them fillers, um, and they're like most likely their game is you know bring your whatever intent to chain, and then extract some MEV and like make it worth your while. Like you get paid mm-hmm. a little fee most likely to to execute in the first place, but yeah, you know, yeah, you, you have it. It's it's your opportunity to to background or whatever. Imagine like someone just proposed like a little hack execution, like a little hack transaction of like multi millions, and then someone else like filled it for them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like who's liable then? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good that's a good question. I I don't know the ones that executed it. I just proposed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know like one of the things that comes up like when you're talking to people about intents with like an executor network people yeah. ask is it possible if i just make an intent that says make me you know turn this ten dollars into a hundred dollars i don't care how like the answer is yes of course that's possible but like who's reasonably going to fill that for you I'm, oh yeah imagine someone fat fingering <laughs> <laughs> just giving you money yeah right. Like, yeah, the or like another, like another exploit. I think a, a new attack vector in account abstraction would be like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this exploit contract where it's the EOA that executes it actually approves their entire balance for me to use it and like send it to myself. You know, like ELC twenty approved, but using account abstraction, someone else executes it with maybe like a balance, right? And then they would approve me to be able to send all their money to me. Like, imagine <laughs> that's a, that's a true attack vector. If that's a, if that, if that's the case, someone else executes it. That's well, yeah. 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 I mean, as a, as an executor, you have to like decode the intent and figure out what it's going to do. So, like your code, just, uh, your code should yeah. probably not like allow you to just drain your balance. <laughs> like, and this is when I think bytecode obfuscation and cold out obfuscation will be like a major player in a can abstraction. You, I, I, I can see so many people getting wrecked because that they don't know how to decode or reverse engineer, you know, these, these contracts. I think it'll be a very uh, niche market actually for the best ones. Interesting. Uh, niche market. For it, who's well, buying. I imagine just like the fillers that execute it, like you just have pose so much risk unless like the normies do it and they just get hacked, which I think would be a normal thing. <laughs> sure of course yeah because they're gonna need eth to execute everything right so they hold eth and i guess their algorithms would have to like check if they have 
you know, their money, right? But then they would also have to check each token and did they get approved or like wrecked in some way? Yeah. Something like that. There's a there's a whole like bunch of stuff that's gonna happen, I think. Which I'm super keen to see. <laughs> yeah. I've I've been doing a little research on on intents and just intent architectures. I think like where a lot of designs are falling short at the moment is they're trying to like spec everything in into the protocol. And I think they're like, they're bloating too much. I think intents in my mind work best when they're defined by an app. And like, this is exactly what we have with smart contracts already. You know, the, the app writes the code and, and you write the transaction that interacts with the app. And then intents, mm. intents just like abstract the, you know, the execution path from the actual order. But it's the same problem. If you have an intent structure that, you know, very specifically lays out like how to, you know, how to lay out your intent, like how to mm. handle swaps or how to handle NFTs or like, you know, whatever other things they come up with. Like if mm. you, if you add too much detail to the spec and like you don't let app developers customize how they want to verify their own intents, then like eventually there's just going to be, it's just going to be too confusing and there's going to be too many attack vectors. But I think it's a cool idea in general, man, if you like send an intent there as like a black hat, and you don't, you make, you just generate a new wallet, right? That means you don't have to fund it, right? You, someone else can fund it for you in, in terms of like executing the transaction because then they can just flash loan and uh, take money, make profit. I think someone did this, like Ape Bank or something a while ago. I forget the name, but they did this exact thing of, but with Flashbots, I think it was, with a bundle. Um, but basically, like, I think in account abstraction, someone can just pay for the gas of the transaction. They just flash loan to get more money, perform the exploit, pay back, and then they have more money. So now they're self-funded and someone else funded them, basically. Um, but yeah, there's going to be like a whole new legal aspect with the oh, yeah. with the intent stuff and the account abstraction. But I'm, I'm pretty keen to see this all play out. Hopefully it gets implemented soon. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's an exciting space. And you got to be prepared for that as well. Like you got to have the, the skills ready to be able to capitalize on that new opportunity. It's going to change the game, definitely. For sure, for sure. But yeah, I think it's just it's going to change the paradigm of searching. Not in the sense that you have to change your algorithms, but you just have to like basically just implement new interfaces. So it's like really not going to change the face. Well, it'll change the face, but it won't change like the the body. <laughs> it's a good yeah. Metaphor. I think actually as well in terms of like searching with account abstraction, like what if you see a bunch of pending transactions in the account abstraction mempool or something, and then you like execute them in a specific order, and then you make a bundle out of that execution, you know, choosing the you're basically like choosing your own function. You're executing someone else's transaction in your own order. I guess it's like a bundle, but like a different form of bundling. Yeah. But, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of neat ideas. And then you can kind of create a bundle by executing someone else's transaction that was pending for a while. Maybe it was pending for like a day or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's totally possible. And I, I think people are actually like, they they want features like that. Um, you know, if, like, like for instance, like a day-long limit order. Like you can't, you know, you can't do that on MevShare right now because our RPC endpoint has a 25 block period. 
And so if your mm. if your transaction isn't included after 25 blocks, it's just discarded. But we've had people ask for you know features where we could just put a transaction in the private mempool for for days and like don't uh, you know don't consider it until somebody tries to backrun it. Uh, like you know don't start the timer until people are actually trying to to put it in a bundle. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see how this all plays out, but uh, I'm sure we'll have another chat when that happens. It'll yeah, be a whole new, a whole new game with Flashbots. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Flashbots is um, all about new games. So we love, we love the game theory and doing all this stuff. But yeah, thanks so much, Brock, for jumping on. Hopefully, you enjoyed this, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would would take a take interest interest in this as well. Talk about a bunch of technical things, and I think that's where the uh, bread and butter is especially in this space. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, thanks so totally. much for jumping on. We'll, we'll definitely uh, chat again. Yeah, on. cool, man. Appreciate you having me. Appreciate you coming on and uh, take care. All right, you too. Adios. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>